Hello and welcome to this, the 10th episode of Head Right Out, and the last episode of the season. I can't believe it. My name is Zoe Langley-Woffen, and today I'll be talking to Ursula Martin, who has built resilience and confidence over the years, simply by realising she has to get on and do it. Now, while it's a longer than usual episode, it's also incredible. Do listen to the end because she shares powerful words right to the very last. Trust your strength of will. She talks about how she doesn't want you to treat her as a hero just because she walked over 3,000 miles around Wales or over 5,000 miles across Europe. We all have an adventure in us and no matter how big or small it is, it's probably more about confidence and self-belief than it is about ability. I'm also going to reveal news about multiple giveaways that I have in store for you to mark the end of this amazing first season. So let's get into the conversation. And today I am with the inimitable Ursula Martin. Hello. Hello, Ursula. Well, Ursula, I'm going to have to just dive straight in and read your very brief bio because this is such a snapshot of who you are and what you've been up to for the last few years. In no way describes what you've really been through. And that's what we're going to dig into once we get into our conversation. In 2011, at the age of 31, Ursula was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She later spent 17 months walking 3,700 miles around Wales, raising money and awareness of ovarian cancer. Since the walk, Ursula went on to write a book about her experience, and it was called One Woman Walks Wales. Fast forward to 2018, and she set off to walk five and a half thousand miles plus across Europe from Ukraine to UK via Spain. Ursula completed her epic, epic solo journey on June the 6th, 2021 in Llanid Lois, Mid Wales. Just take a deep breath there. My goodness. (laughs) Every time I hear something about One Woman Walks or Ursula Martin, there are all of these words, these adjectives that come into my head and I'm sure they're probably not the adjectives that you would use to describe you, Ursula. <laughs> so one word, one word, just straight off there. How would you describe yourself? I'm just interested to know. I don't know. One word is just stubborn, I guess. Oh, I'm so pleased you said that. <laughs> I'm so pleased you said that. I, I mean, that can summarise all the activities yes, kind of in one. Yes. It's not adventurous or... No. Yeah, it's it's stubborn. Yeah, go on. Oh, brilliant. I just threw that in there. I hadn't planned that one at all. When I was looking over your website and just kind of reading up a little bit more about you, I mean, obviously I've been following you for quite a few years, but I just wanted to make sure that I, I had all of the information that I needed. And I read on there that you described yourself as being confused and disorganized. And I'm thinking that just doesn't come across at all and you so you might feel that 
And for me, I just see somebody who has such a lot of perseverance and tenacity and strength Mm. that you just inspire me. And I know you inspire a huge amount of of other people out there. Mm. Mm. I think part of that is my problem with writing bios about myself I just really hate hate it <laughs> I can't I don't like saying good things about myself and so I, I usually try and be a bit kind of subversive and just say I'm really crap this is what I've done and then you just like show it and then let it speak for itself you know a lot of us struggle with that and I know some of the guests that I've had on have had an issue with that as well it's just like mm. how do we big up ourselves and it's not really about mm. bigging up ourselves it's just about being honest isn't it Mm. it's marketing isn't it it's sales and marketing yeah. you know you, you can and you can just go off and do it and you can describe that in one way but when you're also trying to tell people about it that's a different kind of skill altogether and actually not everybody who can go and climb a mountain can also tell a good story about it and get people interested in it you know it's, it's lots of different mm. skills all at once yeah masses of skills in there mm. So let's go back to, was it 2011 you had your mm. cancer diagnosis? Yeah, was it 2011? No, it was 2012. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so Sorry. the year, no, that's okay, year of the Olympics then. So which came first, the challenge that you used in the face of that cancer diagnosis, so that challenge that you decided to head off and walk? Or did you already have that Ursula-style adventure mindset? I'm kind of using adventure loosely, but is it that doggedness that I want to do something, I want to be outside? Yeah, what came first? Definitely the mindset came first. Mm. I mean, in a way, what I've done since the cancer has just been a continuation of a path that I was already on, except that it just got much bigger, much more public and much broader challenges. I think there are lots of ways to end up in a place where you are doing physical, you know, let's use the word adventure, even though I don't really like it. To be an adventurer, you can be a very physical person who loves sports and loves physical challenges and goes into ways that are an exploration of your physical capability. Or different ways that I've actually come about it are more kind of Countercultural is not the right way to describe it, but in this way of seeing the way that life was supposed to be, as in you were supposed to go to university, you were supposed to succeed, you were supposed to get a nice job and a mortgage and whatever, and not wanting to do that, a rejecting of that and pushing boundaries in all kinds of different ways, like behaviorally. And, you know, there are all kinds of different ways in which you can push yourself and open yourself and so I have a lot of friends who are heavily involved in festivals and parties and there's a lot of exploration of boundaries and sense of opening yourself up to questioning your your ideas about the way the world should be Mm. so there are I think adventuring is also a way to do that by saying I'm going to go and sleep on the ground outside And so all these people are going, no, we're humans. We have houses and blankets and comfortable things. And we don't give up our structured, safe way of life. And then you go, but no, I can go and sleep on the ground and I cannot know where I'm going to sleep that night. And oh, look at that. I'm still okay and safe and comfortable in the world. And that's an exploration for me. That's an exploration of behavioral expectations and boundaries and through that which is something that I question and like to do in my life 
I've come to physical adventure <laughs> as a way of doing that. So you've actively sought out not conforming to what yeah. those expectations are. I was unhappy that I had to let go of things. And I really, I started doing that when I was about 27 or so, you know, 25, 27, just letting go of stuff. And the thing that was my first adventure was in 2007 or so. And I've done all kinds of things like hitching across Europe in 2007 or taking six weeks off work and just hitchhiking into Europe and doing this big circle. Into, I went to a couple of festivals in Germany, went to Berlin for a week and then went down into the Balkans, went to stay on a farm in Croatia and then hitchhiked home. And that was six weeks. And that was this exploration of letting go of control of the future. And actually, the, the way that I kind of came to this was by the time I was 28, I was working in a homeless hostel in Aberystwyth. This is 2008. I didn't enjoy the job. It was getting to me. It was getting me down a bit. And I started to do a counselling training course. I'd always been involved in social care, like as a care provider, not as a higher level social care stuff. I started to do a counselling course as a move on option. I kind of realised how messed up I was because that's what you have to do when you do basic counselling is you have to look at yourself. And I realised that I just needed to go travelling you know, in this real cliched kind of way, like what even is traveling? But what I started to do was explore spontaneity and letting go. I think that when you try and control the future a lot, you're not trusting yourself that you have the ability to exist mm. in the future in a spontaneous way. And so not consciously, it's not like I had this plan set up of how I'm going to change become a better person but kind of went yes I'm going traveling and I was 28 and the first few things I did were woofing volunteering on organic farms in in Wales and in the UK that's called woofing woofing yeah it's if you've heard of it you you're not surprised by the word but then if you have I, I, I hadn't heard of that I mean I know about volunteering but yes I hadn't heard that term and <laughs> yeah, I love it it's, it's, it's the thing. there's help as well is another one and it basically it's it's volunteer work but usually on farming or alternative creative projects so it was three years before I got diagnosed with cancer after I went off and started traveling and at the start of that three years I was arranging volunteer projects in advance and at the end of that three years I kayaked down the length of the river Danube and I had no idea where I was going to live at the end of it I literally got off at the harbour side in Varna I ended up in Varna in the Black Sea and I had no idea where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And to me, that's success because I had succeeded in coping with spontaneity and letting go, basically. And so that's what I was doing before I got cancer. And <laughs> so the, the Welsh walks since are a completely different expression. They're not a new thing for me, for sure. But they're, they're just a progression of what I was doing before cancer. But that's amazing. That spontaneity and discovery, that journey of discovery that you were going through without you even realising was setting you up maybe to, mm. to be dealing with what life was going to then throw at you within, within mm. that cancer diagnosis. You were so young to yeah, receive that diagnosis. Nobody expects to be no. given that. A lot of people do like to travel or take a gap year or whatever it is in their 20s. Not everybody does it. There's evidence to say that those people who do do it, it builds their confidence, it builds resilience mm. and strength. Mm. And yeah, it sounds like that's 
certainly how it's helped you. But the fact that then you've realized you need to continue that journey of discovery afterwards, I think that's what's so compelling for me to know about is that you've just extended it and extended oh. it. And, and yeah. So when you were, when you were either considering a journey or planning a challenge, were you facing any barriers within the, the thoughts about what you were going to be doing, where you were going to be doing it, how you were going to do it? I mean, they might have been emotional barriers. They might have been physical barriers. Did you stumble up against anything like that that you thought, gosh, how am I going to get over that? Not sure. I seem to be this great believer in that you can achieve anything you want to if you put your mind to it. It was amazing because the preparation for kayaking the length of the Danube, I didn't really have a loads of money. You know, I had like four or five grand in the bank, something like that, like minimal, really. And that's it. That's all I had in the world. So there was this question of where do I get a kayak from and how do I source it and how do I transport it to Germany where, where the river trip is going to start. So I could have bought a kayak for brand new and have it shipped there for a, a grant, you know, for like 25% of all my money in the world, I could have got a kayak to Ingolstadt or I could have rented it, which to me made no sense either. And what I ended up doing was finding a kayak for sale online in northwest Germany. And then there was this question of, well, how do I get it down to southeast Germany? And I ended up hitchhiking with it. With a kayak? With a kayak. <laughs> with this kayak. <laughs> and the night before, it didn't come with a trolley. So me and my friend, we went skip diving. And I pulled out the framework. It's so inappropriate for a kayak because it was the framework of like those old ladies' pull trolleys. So it was the back of one of those. And the wheels were about four inches across, yeah. if that. And if you know anything about transporting kayaks, you know that that size of wheel is useless <laughs> because, because the wheels go in the center of the kayak. So as soon as you lift the kayak off the ground at one end, the other end dips down. So it actually depends on the height that the wheels have lifted the kayak off the ground to allow for the, the clip, the amount of room that it can tip. What that meant was I could only actually lift it about three centimeters off the ground. And then oh. all of the weight of the kayak was was in my hand. Com completely awful. Just ridiculous. But basically, the moral of that story, the point of that story, the thing that freed me in that situation is that you can be constricted. You know, you can have a situation which you solve with money and it saves you time. But if you have unlimited time, then you can also solve the same problem. So... I did go into a skip and get a stupid pair of wheels and end up dragging the kayak to these service stations. And then it took me five days to hitchhike the length of Germany, which normally it takes about a day. But I got there. You got there. And that was, <laughs> got there. you got there off the back of your own resolve and creativity. Yeah. And yeah. that actually is probably far more rewarding than putting your hand in your pocket and just yeah. buying your way there. Yeah. Yeah, and you've learned so much about yourself and about the world and about skip diving. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's a complete liberation because all these ways in which you feel like you are restricted usually aren't. You just need to readjust your boundaries a little bit. So if you think, I can't possibly go and do this journey, I haven't got enough money, you mm. probably can. You just do it like a tramp instead of like yeah. a, you know, whatever. So that part of it, I would say, that sounds like that's a success part of that story. But actually, like, I face constant boundaries in how much I believe in myself. 
I don't think I ever go into any of this in this really strong, confident, forceful, like, yes, I'm totally capable of doing this. It's more like I really want to do this and I think I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to try it or I'm just going to have a go or I'm just going to do it no matter what. And even though I'm like not necessarily physically the most capable person or financially, I don't have big backers. I don't have lots of money behind me. You know, there's this kind of scratching, like finding a way no matter what. But that is coming through huge boundaries all the time of of self-confidence and self-belief and all kinds of things are stopping me all the time. Yeah, I was just thinking, because I've actually written down here about how you appear to be very confident um, (sighs) and particularly around traveling solo and hitchhiking solo. And you've obviously talked a little bit about where that's come from. But now what I'm hearing is that there is potentially, and I'd never really thought about this, but potentially a difference between confidence and self-belief or self-efficacy. It's that belief in yourself to be able Mm. to carry this off. And I think now, as I'm processing this, that that is different to confidence. Would you agree with that? Because confidence can sometimes appear to be a little bit out there and not abrupt, but almost arrogant. And I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting that you are coming across as arrogant, but I'm almost thinking that a self-belief is much more sensitive to a confidence, if that's making sense. I think so. I definitely think a person can appear confident even when they don't believe in themselves. Because I think for me, there's always this sod it, I'm going to do it anyway, even Mm. if I'm crap and shit. So one of the things that I realized in this counseling training was that it was really important for me never to fail. And that's why I wasn't trying. And it was this day, like it was something to do with this piece of homework that I was supposed to hand in. And I gave it to the teacher and she'd really brushed me off. She was like, thanks. And I realized that I'd created this situation where I'd I'd had the opportunity to hand it to her and have it be mundane. And I hadn't. I'd kept it. And I'd waited until this moment where I was going to present it to her. And she'd say, thank you. And it would be like this moment. And she really blocked it because she was a trained counselor and she had sensations of what was going on. And it's that moment I was like, wasn't that wasn't right like what did I do that for you know and I realized that there were these ways of performative success or something that I was very keyed into about kind of never being wrong or not failing and I think one of the things that I try as hard as I can to be is completely okay with failing and that also combines with this thinking I'm crap all the time and then spending years trying to hide being crap and actually I'm just going I am really crap. I'm doing it anyway. (laughs) And then that gives you this kind of ability to just go out and let that again, it's this letting go. And I think that does come across as confidence. And Mm. it is confidence as well. Like, I am just going to go into a situation and let's just have a go at it type of thing. But in that is simultaneously the lack of self-belief. Just be crap. Just be crap at it, you know? Well, there's so many messages in there. As a teacher, I spent years trying to encourage high achieving girls that they could fail because there there were many of them that almost some of them would not even give something a go because they were so fearful of getting it wrong. Even to the point where I had a student who was potentially an A-star when it was back A-stars, it's not anymore, but an A-star student in my subject. And she had a mock exam and she got a G. 
Mm -hmm. It's like, really, what is going on here? And, Mm -hmm. you know, we had about four months, I think, between that time and her actual exam. And she did end up getting a B, which was amazing. But, you know, it was there was a lot of talk and a lot of encouragement that was needed in that time. And some of that stems from her family Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. where she just felt she was under pressure to succeed in everything. And she couldn't. Well, she felt that that was unattainable. And so, well, if, you know, if I can't attain perfect success in everything, then sod it. I won't do it at all. I won't give it a go. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a big, big issue. I'm really, really pleased that you brought that up. So can you think of a time then where you doubted your resilience? You've obviously got that resilience there and you're carrying Mm -hmm. it through with you now. But has in, in any of those journeys that you've been on, Wales or walking across Europe and we'll talk about those in a bit more detail in a moment but have you had any moments where you have doubted your ability or your resilience to cope with something to cope with something and it might not be you know resilience gosh it's you've got emotional resilience haven't you there's physical resilience Mm. so it could come in many different forms but were you ever in a situation where you were just going I really just can't do this anymore (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what, I have yeah. made decisions to change. So um, in the Pyrenees, for example, I was supposed to be doing the Haute route. It's the hardest traverse in the Pyrenees, east-west traverse. And there was early snow. I had a couple of days where I was basically taking hours to climb a thing that should have taken an hour, falling through snow, like ice bridges type thing, like snow on top of boulder. I was on a boulder field, basically, and it was covered in snow. So Mm. every step you would go down into your thigh or you would stay level. It was not only dangerous, but it was exhausting and time consuming. And I went up and over a pass and then I was supposed to go straight and I came down to a, um, what do you call it, a mountain hut. I made the decision to go down and then come up again into the mountains because the only way was up and over more snow. And and for a, a couple of, well, no, about a week, I kept willing myself to go back up into the mountains and then it would always come to it and I'd go, oh. <laughs> and I was disappointed with myself for not making the ultimate attempt to do something that was as hard as I could. But I kind of also recognised that that's a fallacy. And in some ways, I think that I have very carefully created for myself a style of journey which means that my resilience, like there is no success or failure within my journey. It, I could have walked the whole thing on road and I would still have walked across Europe and I would still have the success story. Mm-hmm. Or I, I could have climbed every single mountain in my path. And also the, the other thing is just, there was no time limit on what I was doing and nobody else was doing it. So there's no race. And there's no competition. Within all the ways in which I created this journey, I can actually be as tough or as not tough as I want to be. And so I was like, you know, kind of gutted in myself that I didn't go up into the mountains. Also, it was fine. I was still in the Pyrenees. I was still at one and a half, two thousand meters. I just wasn't above two thousand where the snow was, you know, and I was still climbing easier mountains and sleeping outside and blah, 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 and walking. 10, 15 miles a day. So in that sense, I tested myself, but I also never, I think I gave myself that ebb and flow of being able to cope. I have made a public journey, which has got me acclaim. As soon as anybody else does the same thing, they'll do it quicker than me. Mm. So in that sense, I've allowed for this ebb and flow of my own 
kind of resilience and patterns of coping or not coping and you know letting it go there's never been like I mean obviously there have been catastrophes like your tent breaks in a rainstorm or you see a bear or you drop one of your walking poles and you have to leave yourself down a mountain to get it or just you know there's all these things that are like okay I might die here carry on you know succeed or fail or die somehow those kind of things don't test my resilience because <laughs> you have to concentrate so hard that you just do it and that, there is there does come a point in some of these situations where your eyes are like staring out of your head because you're concentrating so hard where you've accidentally you know got yourself in a situation where you're clinging to some trees to kind of get a bit back on the path or whatever it is my yeah. resilience has not come to breaking in that kind of situation because you're like well either I do this or I die so get on with it yeah. <laughs> tell us about one of those stories then Ursula I mean the easiest one is the bear just because that's very contained that was the question of thinking that you're calm and then slowly realizing that you're not calm at all um, and it was in the mountains in Bosnia um, I'd come up into this I think it's like the Zelengora mountain range in southern Bosnia and it was about a five-day run with no shops or you know I'd taken loads of food and I'd gone up and put my tent up and I was just about to get in it and I heard this kind of clicking noise nearby and I looked up and uh, around and over I don't know 30 meters away but on the other side of this kind of big bowl depression thing so not 30 meters away in a straight line you know for it to get me standing on a ledge was a bear <laughs> and I was like Okay, and so all this thing, you know, it's like, what have you read on the internet about how what to do when you see a bear? So I remembered all the things. The first thing you do is gently make the bear aware of your presence. So I waved and I went, hi, bear. A human is here. And I was like, oh, hi. Hello. And um, the bear just turned and looked at me and then and just turned and went. But what the amazing part was, was that it was like this Mexican wave because the bear was, I would say I was over here. The bear looked at me and then dropped and left. But behind it came two children, baby bears, <laughs> who both did exactly the same thing. They looked over where the mum was looking. Then they looked to here and then they dropped and left. So it was this one, two, three of oh, how fluid, beautiful, fl beautiful flowing movement yeah. of amazing animals. <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay. Right. Okay. 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 That was a bear. The bear's gone. Is the bear in the vicinity? No, the bear is not in the vicinity. Right. Can I see the bear? No. Okay. Well, what do I do? Yeah. What, right. I get in the tent, I suppose. And I got in the tent and then I'm like, what am I doing? I can't sleep here. Can I really just like lie down on the ground and go unconscious in a place where I've literally just seen a bear? And I was, my mind was just racing with like, is it going to come back? What do I do? Da, 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 da. And I just started talking to myself because that's what I do when I'm very under pressure is you talk and you talk yourself through that situation so I'm like okay the bear knows where I am Did the bear come back yes should I be here when the bear comes back no okay pack up the tent so you pack up the tent and then I'm like okay just go down the mountain but I'm going down the mountain you know if you'd said to yourself if you'd asked me at the time you'd say Ursula you can't you'd be like yep I'm fine I've seen a bear but it's no problem and then I realized like my eyes are there pointing at my head like about two inches and I was so full of adrenaline and it was just it's starting to get to twilight and I was coming down this 
like rocky kind of bit and it was a bit I had to really make sure that I was very careful about my footing and staying calm and not you know just I couldn't run down that mountain it was a bit of a climby like a bit mm. of a scramble in places and and I was like okay the sun is setting I'm still in bear territory but what the hell am I going to do I just put this tent up and sleep and so I did I put the tent up and that was the first time that I put very different you're supposed to put your food outside the tent basically so I put my food outside the tent bear, bear bag isn't it I think yeah bear you canister. can have like a bear canister but I didn't carry one of those because they're very big and bulky and heavy yeah. and anyway bears just run away when you well in my experience <laughs> I thought you were gonna say he just turned around and waved back yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh what that's an amazing yeah. story that is an well amazing story. yeah yeah and yes there was no crisis there but at the time it was yeah a moment of like <gasps> realization in, in that moment you have that possibility that you curl into a ball and freak out and do nothing and mm. you as a person on your own have to force your brain to do the right things to get you through that crisis and mm. I guess that is resilience and it, the thing that confused me with that question is asking me for like one example but really in an endurance challenge you know in what I did the resilience is day after day after day and I, I kind of talk I think about it sometimes as in like being your own gym coach so I'm simultaneously the person who's lying on the floor exhausted and the person who's screaming in my own ear and so it, that's the thing. Oh, yes. And whenever I get to, I get to the end of a day, and you just want to go, oh Jesus! And you have to go, put the tent up, get warm, look after your body temperature, eat something, drink some water, get in that sleeping bag, then collapse. That's mm. the resilience. That's the that's the small resilience every day. You know. I know that. I do understand that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. Well. It sounds like you were making some very sensible decisions as well regarding the Hope Route. You know, you said at some point you felt perhaps like you were a failure or or that you had, but then but then you had given yourself that freedom to not be failing because mm. you were making up your own rules. It was your journey, it was your own criteria. There were there were no rules. And so yeah, so it was probably a very sensible decision coming down and, and walking the lower route. And again, with the bear, you know, you made a decision there. Your head's going through all the what ifs. And I guess you're mitigating all the possible risks, aren't you, at that point? Mm -hmm. Because that's what we do, because we have to keep ourselves safe. And yeah, I think in that situation, I'd have probably done a similar thing. Mm. I don't know. Was staying there an option? I guess it is an option, but I, I think I probably would have gone down and then, like you say, it's, it's twilight. So it's at, because it's twilight, you're also putting yourself at risk of slipping, coming down that rocky descent. Yeah, it's amazing. So can we talk a little bit more about your walk across Europe? Because, mm, yeah, sure. yeah, I mean, that's your obviously most recent journey. And you've just returned back in June. I had the honour of walking with you a couple of days before you returned to Clannad Lois. And that, I mean, that was a treat just to walk and talk with you and just, I don't know, feel some of that presence that you carry online. And this is going to sound like I'm a, I'm a fangirl. It's like, yeah, I'm immersed, <laughs> immersed in the aura of Ursula Martin. You know, I've been obviously communicating mm. with you for many years now, mm. and it just felt like such an appropriate moment. I'm living in South Wales. You're returning to Mid Wales. 
we both love to walk. We both appreciate being in the outdoors. Just felt so appropriate to come and walk with you. Just to be with you in those moments before the madness of returning, because it was a big moment coming back, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Let's take you back to the very start of your Europe journey. How did you get from Wales to Ukraine? I know there's something there that is quite special to you. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, I hitchhiked from Hook of Holland, really. I started hitchhiking from Llanidloes. I got a lift with a friend and then it didn't end up working. So I got a couple of trains across to the ferry and really hitchhiked from the ferry. Yeah. From, so from Holland to Ukraine, yeah. Hitchhiking is a really important part of journeys to me as well because, you know, it's not necessarily this physical challenge, it's, but it's also an adventure. And it's, again, it's this coping with the unknown, mm. which that's kind of a key part of what I call a challenge, a growth opportunity or a state of transition into a new sense of self. Hitchhiking is really important in that for me. So yeah, hitchhiked to Ukraine, <laughs> to Kiev. And uh, then coming into Kiev, you had a particular meeting with a guy that took you over the border. Mm. Yeah, Igor, my first Ukrainian guy. So I talked about this in my talk the other night, yeah. um, which was, it was a very cute moment of him, basically him him picking me up and saying, I can't take you across the border because... He was scared, basically, and it is this kind of hangover of communism, probably, you know, or excessive state oppression, as in, I don't know who you are and I can't trust. It's not okay. And so he was. He said, I don't know who you are, I can't take you across the border. And and then the, the journey went on for so long, and um, he was driving this tiny little kind of chugging VW van. At one point, he just stopped and he started rubbing his eyes, and then he just keeled over and, like, slept with his head on my leg. <laughs> I was in the passenger seat, just just like, okay, all right, you are you sleeping? Are oh, you sleeping? Okay, you're just gonna sleep on my leg. All right, fine. And it was really sweet. And then we got to the border and I was like, Do you want me to get out? And he said no. And we just looked at each other and it, it was just this real little bonding moment of he slept on me and then he we trusted each other more and then we carried on together into Ukraine. Massive trust. Um, Massive trust. There. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know. You do. I think people are more scared of hitchhiking than they should be because mm. there's a real bonding to just being in a car with somebody. And people say it about counselling as well, don't they? When you're in a situation where you can talk without looking at each other. No eye contact, I've, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that said about different styles of counselling where that can actually um, help people to communicate better or to unload better. And I have heard so many amazing life stories while hitchhiking just beyond anything and it's a very intimate space you you bond and connect and you you, you know you eat food together sometimes and especially um lorry drivers because they're just used to being on the road and this is their life and essentially mm. you're invited into their house so there's an immediate comfort in it and relaxation and I think people don't appreciate that until they've done it a lot because it's all like is this person going to kill me you know yeah and it's not it's not most of the time it isn't about that at all that is that is what we've been conditioned to believe isn't it or you mustn't hitchhike because xyz might happen and i think i'm very much of that ilk yet it sounds so liberating and it makes so much sense because 
I used to get the best conversations and the best information and, and the best offloads from my teenage daughter when she was sat in the car mm-hmm. next to me. And yeah. we used to have the most amazing conversations then. Yeah, so much less intense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Really? And walking, yeah. talking. You know, when I've been on yeah. long distance walks and I've met people and we're just talking and walking. And again, in the space of a couple of hours, you know, you've heard somebody's life story. Mm. And it's like, whoa, mm. how did how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, mm. it, and that makes a lot of sense. Mm. So how many countries did you then pass through? So you've reached Kiev. Uh, w- reached Kiev and I wanted to walk back home, not the direct way back through Poland, but I wanted to go and visit Bulgaria and the Balkans because I had a lot, a lot of love for those countries after my Danube journey Mm. and I also wanted to go through Spain because I also spent a lot of time in northern Spain about 10 11 12 years ago so it was a case of revisiting I suppose in a way but also just going to places that connecting the places that I loved so it ended up technically if England and Wales are separate it was 14 countries so did you say 14 then 14 yeah 14 wow Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Italy, France, Andorra, Spain, England, Wales. 14. Wow. That's probably 13, really. (laughs) You can count England. I'm going going for 14. (laughs) (laughs) I would go with that as well. (laughs) Gosh. So, yeah, you've met a lot of people in those places. You've experienced incredible landscapes severe extremes of weather I'm assuming can you recount well um the first winter was in Romania so it was actually the the month of December was the hardest because it had a very severe Siberian cold snap so there wasn't any snow but there was frost and I think the coldest night that I slept in was minus 14 in that period then fortunately I went and had a winter uh, Christmas break in Bucharest and then when I came back it was snow had fallen and it was heavy snow but warmer probably more like minus five to minus ten at night which is obviously still hard but um Hawaiian. <laughs> minus, minus 14 was 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 a shock minus 14 I, because I didn't have um, a good enough I didn't have um over the Christmas break I got a heavier sleeping mat so the minus 14 was really at the limit of what my equipment could cope with mm. that night and it was it was a very intense cold I don't know how to describe it. I, I guess it's experience as well, because if I'd had the right equipment, minus 20 would have been an intense cold. You know, and I've had that experience at minus five as well, when you're like, it, it just goes, once it's kind of below about minus four, it starts to be serious business. You know, it's mm. not like, oh, I can just sit here for a couple of minutes. It's like, there's a pressure to it, the cold. There's an intensity, of, there's a penetratingness to it. It's a slap. Did you struggle in. with it? I don't like I don't enjoy camping in snow no it's hard work and it's you have to be very careful camping in cold temperatures you have to be careful all the time and Mm. so especially when you're also dealing with that exhaustion that I was talking about where in the summer or the spring autumn you can just sit down for a few minutes before you put the tent up yes even more so in the winter it's like you have to do this right now because if you don't, you're going to spend two hours dealing with your lack of body temperature, mm. your lowered body temperature. And you just can't so, get it back up again, then, I guess. It's, you've got it's to... just that it takes longer. So right. every, every every bit that you drop, you are then going to be less comfortable in your sleeping bag for longer while your body creates that temperature again that you've just lost yeah. to the air, you know. So, I mean, you can do it. Do sit-ups in your sleeping bag. 
you know, that's that's basically the way to do it. Was that oh, something that you fun. learned again by experience rather than by research? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I don't think it's the best. Oh, you do research as you're going, but I, I don't think you can imagine every eventuality. You know, you no. do learn kind of, you know, you left your neck uncovered and look what happened. That's what you're going to do again. Your nose is getting cold. I knitted myself a little nose warmer. So <laughs> condom for like, your nose. Like, I had a little string around there. Well, I didn't, I didn't use it all that much. But, you know, you, there are these things of like, you know, you can read online about condensation in a tent. Yeah. But until you've really kind of lived with it and dealt with it. And how does your breath affect the way the, what fabrics are around your face as you're trying to sleep and how to cover and how to uncover it is experience you know you yeah. do have to go out there and try it just don't go out at minus 14 for your first night out go out at zero and then yes. go out at minus three and ease yourself into it and that's how you learn just trying it just having a go because otherwise you're trying to absorb all the information about all the potential things that might happen and you're worrying about whether you're in control of every single eventuality yeah. I don't work that way and you're doomed to failure because you'll always be thinking, is there something I haven't covered before I get out there? Actually, you just need to get out there and do it and you will learn. That and is you gold. probably won't die. <laughs> that is gold. That is absolute diamond advice. And yeah, yeah, because the more you research, and I'm guilty of that, the more you research, the more you overplan, the more you overanalyze, the yeah. less likely you are to go and do it. Because yeah. you you are now thinking, oh, I've got to sort this. I've got to, you know, make sure I've exactly. got that in place and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah, so, no. And what if there's a monsoon? And what if there's, you know, yeah. and like, I like the fuzzy logic kind of sense of preparation, as in I'm kind of pretty much aware that I will probably cope with whatever happens to me. And I have it within myself to make good decisions in that moment. And I've shown myself that I do over mm. and over again. So even if I've got wet kit because I didn't keep everything in five dry bags inside my rucksack, I'm going to be fine. But a lot of people are stuck in that sense of armour. And that's not my thing. No. Not at all. Important message. Thank you. So you've moved through these countries mm. and you're communicating and connecting with different cultures, different people, making some really incredible connections I would imagine I mean I, I was at your talk on Sunday in Kington and you know there were some very moving moments there where you shared connections you'd made with specific women then you you move into an area or a, no, not an area you move into a time that you hadn't planned on that nobody could ever have planned for and that's when you reach Italy you know, I hate to mention it because I know a lot of us are trying to avoid this conversation, but you walked, you were having to walk through a lockdown and suddenly mm -hmm. you're thrown into a sense of panic, I would imagine, and mm -hmm. no people. But how did you deal with this? What was going on in your head? Yeah. What, how did it pan out for you? There have just been so many stages to the pandemic, as we have all experienced, you know, the, the growing concern that something was very wrong, the realisation that we couldn't avoid it, the complete fear and anxiety about a massive shift in societal behaviour 
And then the fighting of, you know, is this the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? And I think globally and as individual countries, every government has been working that out as nobody had a proper plan for this. We've all been flying by the seat of our pants globally, structurally and individually. And so, (laughs) yeah, I basically have been intensely vulnerable during the pandemic because I'm homeless. I was homeless in Italy during a pandemic. I was a tourist. But I was a very particular, unusual type of tourist who was walking and sleeping in forests and sleeping outside. And so the short version of what happened is that I was walking across northern Italy during January, February. And in early March, Italy was the first country that went into lockdown. I didn't know what was happening and I wasn't able to easily get somewhere to live, to stay. I wasn't able to go into a house or a hotel mm. in Italy and I was so close to the border and I just thought I'm going to walk across the border so I had this um seven I can't remember seven or ten days of feeling like a fugitive and just being so worried about what was happening and walking out of Italy in that time it just felt apocalyptic in some ways I kept walking on all these closed roads where the, the roads were like sliding away down the mountainside um and then I walked the last village I was in was this ski resort village so everywhere was closed all the houses were shuttered and closed anyway and they were in mist and I was like walking through trying to get out of the country and just feeling like our foundations of society were shaken for everybody I think Mm, in terms of how how do we interact and what do we access and where does our money come from all these really fundamental things affected everybody and so I was feeling all that fear with nowhere safe to go as well so it's very intense for me but what happened was I basically made it into France two three days before their lockdown happened and managed to get a friend's sister's holiday home to stay in so I did have a safe place to go about 200 kilometers away on the train I was incredibly grateful to have that and I was there for three months of the first lockdown and I was so alone the hard part of the pandemic for me was Mm intense vulnerability and intense loneliness and basically having to rely on having no safe place you know you think you can go off traveling and test yourself and then all of a sudden shit hits the fan and it gets even harder Mm. and so I definitely struggled and suffered with loneliness during the pandemic especially during that first lockdown I did keep on walking there was always this decision about what are the rules here is it safe? What am I going to do? How do I keep walking? You know, in some ways, I'm actually a very low risk person because I was walking alone. I spend most of the time five nights a week sleeping outside and then I'd go into a B&B one, two nights a week for a day off. And I'd go into bars and restaurants, but I wasn't mixing with people. For me, there was this constant assessment of my behavior of, okay, I'm doing this thing called traveling, which we're not supposed to do, you know, well, nobody could come from England into France to do what I was doing, but I was already there anyway. And people could drive from Germany to come and be tourists. There was this constant kind of, there was no easy answer about, yes, you're doing the right thing. No, you're not. Are you legally allowed to do this? Are you not? It was so many rules were changing all the time. And I just basically walked when I could and stopped when I had to. Mm. And it was really hard. (laughs) It was really hard at times. i over the summer, I walked through south of France. So that was the other extreme where the temperature was up to, you know, 35 degrees in the south of France in full summer heat. 
And that was a completely different temperature and climate shift to cope with, you know, making sure you're hydrated and don't get sunstroke and stuff. And then it came into the Pyrenees and that was in the autumn. And that was when the cases had kind of dropped over the summer and then they were starting to rise again in Spain and France. Did the Pyrenean Traverse and then there were, well, it's funny because I say there were loads of infections in Spain at that time. But actually, since then, it's infections that felt like a lot then. And now we have much higher infection rates and we seem to be treating it as if it's no big deal. So it's, it's bizarre because there is never actually any time to pinpoint a time in the pandemic where we understand it, what was happening in terms of what's happening now, because everything has really been shifting in terms of the amount of fear, the amount of regulations and the amount of infection. And so it was all very particular to a point in time. I can't define it now and have us understand it because I was shocked that there were one in a thousand people had coronavirus in La Rioja in that time. But actually, one in 1300 people in this country have got coronavirus right now. And Mm. we're treating it like it's no big deal. So it's hard to give it definition now in a way that we understand what was happening back then, if you see what I mean. Yeah, there's no previous benchmark to follow because it just hasn't happened. Everything was so reactive to what was happening in that moment. And basically, I went into a second French lockdown for six weeks. And then I made the decision to enter Spain, walked across the top of Spain. It was January, February, March. By that point, there was more snow. I was on the Camino de Santiago, which had virtually shut down because of the lack of international travel. Which route were you on, Ursula? Uh, I walked the French route to Finisterre, and then I walked the Primitivo and the uh, Camino del Norte back to Santander. I had a third lockdown in Ponferrada for a month, the month of February. I had a third lockdown because Galicia was very, very closed at that point. And so it was just this case of like not giving up on it, basically. It was this real, you know, I guess at that point you really see how much the journey means to you because you're not going to give it up. You're going to stay by hook or by crook. Mm. I got to finish there, basically. And I suffered and struggled to get there with the emotional intensity of the pandemic, in addition to the physical intensity of walking thousands of miles and camping and, you know, all the journey strains. And then the bloody pandemic, the anxiety of the pandemic on top of that was so intense. It was so intense. I can imagine. And, and yeah. I've walked the Camino de Santiago. I've walked that with Mike in 2016. That was our, our honeymoon, our honey walk. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just so full of people. We both said it was the most sociable walk we have oh, ever done. Yeah. And, you know, every time you come into a town, you know, there are people sat around the tables outside bars and cafes and they're yeah. cheering you as, as you come in. And I can imagine all you had was tumbleweed, the proverbial tumbleweed, just rolling through each of these towns and villages as you pass through. I walked it with you in my mind, in my memory, because I was imagining all of these places as I knew them. And mm. what you were experiencing was not a Camino that anybody, I think, has ever, ever experienced. Mm. There were others on the Camino. Mm. It's just that I didn't see them. I followed a guy's footprints in the snow for three or four days because the, the, the way the weather was very particular, it, it snowed and froze and then stayed below freezing for a week day and night so this guy's footprints were frozen in the snow oh amazing so it was like you were chasing not chasing him you were I was trying to catch him yes I wanted somebody to talk to (laughs) 
and, and did he you had this really particular boot so it was I knew it was always him yeah and they were big feet as well so probably a guy but there were other people I don't want to give the impression that I was the only person on the whole Camino I was the only pilgrim I met yeah, whole community, but there were others. It's just that instead of having in the depths of winter thirty to fifty people sleeping in each town each night, you probably had about five people on the entire route. That you see, to me, that is empty. Yeah. That just does. Yeah, it's not yeah. natural for that area. I mean, the last hundred kilometers, no. particularly this year, which is a holy year. Twenty twenty one was the holy year, wasn't it, for the Camino? And so it should have been even more full than usual but that last 100 kilometers people get bussed in just to walk the last 100 kilometers so you can guarantee that last few days of walking the Camino is thousands of people and it's like a motorway it's so busy and I just can't get my head around how that must have felt for you can you describe how you felt as you walked into Santiago Oh, I felt really sad walking in Santiago because I imagined, oh, I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry again. Because I imagined what it would be like with loads of other people and you'd have this, um, where you'd be part of a wave of the joy of arrival and this push and this peak of exhilaration. And there wasn't anyone there. (laughs) It was just me and I really felt the lack of it. But in other ways, walking the rest of the Camino was kind of weird, but also normal because I'd been on my own for the whole journey and I'd expected and wanted other pilgrims. But when they weren't there, some parts of it were just, I'm just back in the mechanics of walking alone and this is normal. And I had really wanted that challenge of being around other people, almost to bring yourself down from this kind of solitary hero sense of it. Because I do wish I'd had that kind of grounding in other people's challenges as well. So you're not kind of carried away with your own heroics all the time. It would have been a challenge for me of how to compare my journey to others. Yeah. When you're doing something that's so huge and so extreme. And how do you find the similarities of challenge and transformation in what other people are experiencing, mm-hmm. even though for me it was a very easy section. Yeah. Essentially. Yes. Yeah. Physically. So I missed that. I missed other people and I felt yeah, walking in Santiago was just massive. Yeah. And anti-climax all at once. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. It's an experience that you'll never forget. You'll carry that with you for a long time. Mm. And one that not very many other people will have experienced doing that mm. empty. Mm. I'm going to fast forward you to the UK now, because by extreme contrast, your experience of Santiago and Moving on to Finisterre, you did reach Finisterre, which is uh-huh. should explain to some of the listeners that maybe don't know about Finisterre is the coastline, the far end of the Camino. The Atlantic the, Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean, yeah. Amazing. That was massive. To, to arrive at the ocean from Kiev and to know that I'd walked all that way, it was just, that uh. was my kind of mind-blowing achievement moment of this ultimate, you've walked as far as the sea all that way across the continent and you've always been heading in this one direction and now you can't go any further and you made it and there was the sea you know wide 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 open it was fantastic it was really fantastic it was that was a real achievement and that's yeah that is like nature's recognition to you and every time you look at a map you must go oh my gosh I walked that yeah it just yeah, yeah once, I, it, once it gets bigger and bigger you're like yeah 
And don't you have a different relationship now with physical maps? Because I I know when I used to have a kitchen, (laughs) I used to have a huge map of the UK on the wall. And every time I'd walked a different route or a different path, I would feel differently towards that area and that map. You know, the association Mm. with people, places, feelings that I'd had. I don't know. that. Do you find that? Yeah, I guess it's just all your memories are contained in that route, aren't they? And you know it and you've been there. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting to to go to do another walk where where I haven't been, you know, because now I've come back to Wales and I know I know Wales intimately. Yes. And so it's very comforting and I can really relate to all the so much of Wales because I've walked it so intensely. Yeah. And I'm hopefully planning to do another walk starting in January, which is going to be Land's End on a Groat. And actually, that's going to be really nice to explore England and Scotland, where I haven't really walked before. Things like the Cotswold Way, the Pennine Way, the West Highland Way, all these places that I haven't walked before, yet I, I know them culturally. And, you know, I know the imagery but I'm going to explore them. I'm going to explore my own country. And I think yes. that's, that's going to be yeah. really exciting. Yeah. And that will connect you even deeper to yeah, those places. And that, my country. Your yeah. country. Yes. You you were born in in England. I was born in Wales, my country of Britain. Yeah. I sometimes I split myself. I am neither Welsh nor English, really. No. I'm culturally English and then yeah. you know, physically Welsh. And yeah. I don't know. So I just I tend to sound British. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, fine. This is this is my island. the contrast then between walking Spain and then reaching the last few days of your journey coming back to Clannad Lois can you just talk us through those moments those those emotions yeah what was going on for you there it was physically very difficult I started to be in a lot of pain after Finisterre and it never really went away because every time I stopped, I was resting, but I wasn't resting. And I just had lots of pain in my legs and feet and my back and my shoulders. And it hurt everywhere and it just didn't seem to stop. So I had all these stop starting parts of the journey where I couldn't get a ferry until a certain point. They weren't open to foot passengers. So I had more time than I needed to walk back from Finisterre to Santander could go like eight to 10 miles a day. But actually, you were still putting in kind of 75% of the effort for 50% of the distance. So it didn't actually work. No. And then then I had to wait in Santander. And then I had to wait for the quarantine. But somehow I didn't, my body didn't rest and relax. And so when I started again from Portsmouth, I was in a lot of pain physically. And but somehow this, I just pushed through it and was so focused on the end you know I was meeting lots of people at that point I had lots of people for the first time in the journey I had loads of different people coming out to walk with me so that was this kind of hyper I think I got more and more keyed up in a social sense being happy to see people and chatting and I'm really interested to see how you feel I was on that it was kind of two or three days before the end yeah I think because I was so tired but in so much pain but somehow the functioning I don't know how do you feel about how I was functioning I got a sense you were more than functioning I didn't see pain I know we talked about it but I didn't see it you didn't look like you were in pain you were you were tired I could see you were tired and I could see you were emotionally 
tired as well. And I got a sense that was, although you were being buoyed up by the amount of people that you had been walking with, Mm. I think you were also feeling quite drained as well, because walking for so long with such little human contact, Mm. and then suddenly you're having to give of yourself to everybody so much all the time and talking to them, I think, yeah, I got a sense that that perhaps was hard. Apart from being tired, I just sensed that you were on this even keel. And that is how you always appear to me, Ursula. You always, whether or not inside you are kind of up and down, up and down, or paddling furiously to try and keep up with yourself, you know, and your emotions and whatever's going on, actually you just always appear to be this stoic force that just, it's just a quiet strength a quiet Mm. strength and that is how you came across and I will never forget the moment where we're walking over the Radnor Hills and I'm talking to you about you know my fears and particularly of heights and walking up the side of Penny Ghent actually scrambling up the side of Penny Ghent and and how I dealt with that we had the views We, we all stopped and looked at the views and we had the beacons one way and we had the mountains of Snowdonia in another direction you were able to stand up there and pinpoint all of these areas and that was a very special moment because we were we were sharing that together but then you said to me Zoe how would you have dealt with that scramble up the side of Penny Ghent in the wind and the rain and dealing with your heights if Mike hadn't have been there Mm. and I went yeah you're right I'd have just got on with it and you know there wasn't drama but there was a lot of drama going on inside my head (laughs) And I think, yeah, probably there would have been less drama had I been on my own. So so anyway, I digress slightly there. But yes, that was my experience and my snapshot of that day. And it was a very, very special day, which I I felt honoured to be able to be part of that. No, don't be honoured. It was it was really lovely because of everybody who was there. Yeah, it was just a really nice group. I don't know if it was concocted. (laughs) I don't think it was. In my eye, this was complete coincidence. I contacted you because I wanted to walk with you and unbeknown to me, Hannah Engelkamp, who is Seaside Donkey, for those people who don't know, on Instagram, she walked around Wales with a donkey a few years ago and also a friend of mine happened to be walking with Ursula that day. And in addition, it turns out that my other good friend, Ari, Ari Kane, who ran around Wales in 2012, was the first woman to run around Wales. She was also walking with you that day. And so there's four of us together. And it was the first mm. time I'd met you face to face, but I still felt like you were a friend of mine. You know, we had that connection. We had been communicating for quite a few years on I don't know, whatever social media it was. And then we had your uncle and auntie and they just kind of brought us all together. I mean, they're just a breath of fresh air. And it was so lovely to walk and talk with them too. So it was, it was a, a beautiful group. Amazing that we had so many connections and that we all walked together on the same day and that it felt so peaceful. Mm. It felt like it didn't have the hype of somebody else maybe joining the group that was a follower or a fan. And I do that in air quotes that might have been maybe in your face a bit more. It just felt so normal and natural. And Mm. it's just like, Yeah. yeah. We were going girls on a hike. You know, it was great. It was lovely. It was was a really great day. Yeah. And that was, it just was really nice. I felt, I guess I think I would say spaced out a lot 
during that time because I don't know it's like being on the surface of a balloon or something I I guess I just felt so stretched thin and I, I was still able to do it all but I knew I couldn't do it for much longer and I wasn't going to have to and that's when you can start to feel like you're going to collapse and yeah so it's like a hallucinatory you know like when you've stayed up all night kind of feeling and you're just whoa yeah Yeah. space cadet stuff will happen to you and you'll talk about it and it's fine you're you you know you're functioning but you're also really not only half on the planet yeah (laughs) half present you reach Leonard Lois and what a moment I mean I almost wish I had been there I couldn't make it Uh, I forget now why I couldn't make it but oh my gosh the photos and the sound the videos talk just (laughs) Yeah, to talk us through those moments because you. Oh. I mean, that's why. I mean, it, it really was starting. It was already happening. That very slow buildup of emotion, and what had happened was that for that day, I had been able to say, "I'm going to be starting at this point." You know, I can't remember how far twelve or so miles away from Flanadlois at this time, and then whoever wants to come can come and join me. And there were other points where people could come. So about I don't know six or seven different friends came to the start of the day and so there was a train of people and more and more people kept coming in and at one point this really good friend of mine came walking towards the field over the field towards me and her and her boyfriend were carrying this set of bunting on two sticks (laughs) and they walked beside me for the rest of the journey so I had I was walking underneath this train of flags and then uh, uh, more people were waiting on the side of the track and it just became this kind of procession going down into the town and I could feel this like it was like the kind of emotion where you're where you start speaking in tongues I could feel I was gonna lose it because I was just so like and it was this build up build up and I didn't know what was going to happen all I knew that was that I wanted to walk up the center of the main street I'd said I will be there at this time and I had no idea who was going to be there or how many people and we came around the bottom of the market hall and there it was this moment of I was there and I just shouted so loudly and it was absolutely brilliant because that was the truest again letting go and just not being embarrassed to shout or swear or just just lose your shit basically and I just lost it all the way up that street and I was just shouting and like yeah just pointing at people that I knew and just like you are here and just it was this complete burst of celebration and it was just so good it was everything it was all it could possibly have been you know that first shout really came you know deeper than my pelvis it came from my boots the whole of my body was able to handle that force I didn't suppress it in any way the whole of my body participated in bringing out this huge shout of joy and force it looked there, like such a burst of energy it was, it was so, oh it it just it catapulted so from you and it it looked really primal yeah, from what I could really see and was, the, yeah really and was. the photographs captured that burst of energy that came out beautifully <sighs> what a fitting celebration mm. as mm. well for how many years yeah. were you on the road in the end or on the path it was two years nine months two years nine months and you had gone through so much yeah. Um, yeah. up here in your head and physically and 
yeah, there's there was so much that you've been through. And with the pandemic adding to that as well, then to have mm. that very fitting celebration and, and you deserved, totally deserved all of those people to be there and just cheer you in. I'm so pleased that you had that. So pleased. It was, it was yeah, it was wonderful. Wonderful. It was a wonderful day. Oh, well, Ursula, we are we're coming to the end of our conversation now and I mm-hmm. to be honest I mean I could carry on for another hour listening to you because <laughs> I don't normally have quite so many questions written down on the page but I okay. have so many here and maybe it's something one day we can come back and have a, a second conversation mm. because the, mm. yeah you had so many amazing stories to share and we obviously only have a certain amount of time <laughs> which we can fit it in. Well it's interesting that's what I realised when I gave the first talk just a few days ago about Mm. the walk is I've almost done too much stuff to talk about so there is a a change of style now where I can get more abstract if you see what I mean so where you are talking about motivations and coping skills rather than I climb this mountain I climb that mountain do you see what I mean and I think there is an ability to move into a more abstract sense of you know a different conversation yes where it isn't the story of the journey anymore yes people want to hear the story of the journey but yeah definitely the focus of head right out is always going to be about well how did you face these issues these barriers or how did you achieve that particular outcome despite going through xyz whatever it was you went through There is one last question, Ursula, and that is the question I ask everybody. I'm collecting head right out moments. I'm wondering, have you had an experience, a moment where you can recount that you have totally and utterly headed out of your comfort zone, but you have succeeded or not because success is, as we've discussed, it doesn't matter sometimes if you fail because failure is only you know the limitation that you give yourself have you experienced a benefit as a result of heading out of your comfort zone because that's the message that I'm trying to get across to other midlife women yeah is there something that you can pinpoint as your head right out moment yes it's not necessarily going to fit in with the adventuring story but actually it's life modeling okay um that's good. because I've been, I've been a life model I think I first did it in about 2008 also I've done it at various points and I've always been a fat person at the same time so there was this real like shame and embarrassment about my body because it's not perfect you know because it's not thin and life modeling was this huge way for me to be comfortable with my body or to become more comfortable with my body but that moment where I just was like I'll see if they want a life model yes they did okay what time do you want me to turn up I turn up and I go behind the curtain and I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> I'm going to take my clothes off in front of all these people. And I just was like behind this curtain. I just had this moment of like, you're, well, you've said you're going to do this. So now you've got to do it. And I, you know, just went out there. And then the moment you actually are naked in front of people, nothing matters. It doesn't matter at all. You're just, you're just a body and you're not the worst. You're not the most unattractive person there's ever been in the world because that's what my brain is telling me all the time and so there's this sense of complete normality about it and so that I'd say is one of the moments where I have really pushed through a fear and then found out that everything was fine on the other side you know oh liberating and I've done hours many many hours of life drawing Mm. and and really appreciated the models that weren't 
just mm. stick thin. But mm. There's so much more to give and so much more to draw and to appreciate mm. in a fuller figure. Yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from there. And I would be fearful but I can yeah. also see how liberating that would be too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. No. I was thinking it was going to be like, you know, stepping out of the tent where I thought there was going to be a bear there. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> oh, no, I have myriad um, life experiences, not all of which I share at the same time. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Ursula, where can people discover a bit more about you if they want to come and search and investigate and buy your book and this is this is your book of whales and you are currently in the throes of writing your new book as Mm -hmm. well so we'll we'll watch that space but where can they find you so i'm mostly called one woman walks on everything onewomanwalks.com is my website and then it's the same on facebook and instagram and twitter i think i'm woman walks whales but you can find me the website's the main place There's all the blogs from the whole journey, from the whole Europe walk. Most of the blogs are still on the website. So it includes things like kit lists, if people are interested in that. How I dealt with plantar fasciitis is quite a good one. Just loads of stuff. And then all the, you know, the lovely stories about people that I met and different experiences and so on. So there's plenty of reading material. Everything from from landscape to people to socks (laughs) and everything in between. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there anything, Ursula, that we've not talked about that you would have liked to have had the opportunity to mention? I would I just think that disconnect between how I come across and how I am on the inside is really something that I would emphasize. You know, I'm really not actually all that confident of a person. Mm. And I definitely was not originally before I started all this. I was very flawed and broken you know, not, not, not mentally healthy. And I have shown myself what I can do. And that has built confidence within me because I'm more certain of myself and what I can endure. A lot of people want to put me separate to them as in, I could never do what you do. Mm. And that's not, if it's all in your head, then that's not true because I have got out there and done it. And that's nothing to do with, I don't know, that's my strength of will basically. So it is accessible to many more people than they realise. And don't put me on a pedestal or don't make me different. Don't make me a hero because I'm not. Wow. That's, I've actually, I got tears in my eyes there. That is is such a passionate message. Mm. And I thank you. Ursula Martin, thank you so much for coming on Head Right Out. I hope we'll get the opportunity to have a conversation again at some point Mm -hmm. soon. thank, Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Oh, yes. What an episode to complete the series with. I could listen to Ursula for hours. Her voice is soothing, it's calm, and yet her stories pack such a punch. She has such a great way of telling them, don't you think? Now, I'm not sharing a head right out moment with you this week, but I do want to let you know that right here, I will be heading right out of my comfort zone on Friday when hopefully I get to do my scary skydive. Eek! That will appear during the coming weeks as a bonus outdoor episode. I also spent this last weekend just gone doing a two-day navigation course with the South Wales Adventure Queens. 
And so I'll be creating another bonus episode from the hours of content that I've recorded with some amazing women. Now, the name for the outdoor episodes was put to a vote. And while I ended up with lots of suggestions, which I thank you for, the out and out winner was, and you'll see what I did there in a minute, head right out out. I'm not just heading right out. I'm heading right out out. I love it. So thanks to Sharon Meridue for coming up with that winning name. And I'm going to be popping a t-shirt in the post to you, Sharon, as a thank you. I know you didn't expect that. I know I didn't advertise I was going to do that, but I have a spare t-shirt and that's what I'm going to do. Now, I'm taking a six-week break between series one and two to allow myself time to record and edit more quality content for you. And I also have a move back to the boat to do. Mum's potentially moving back home from respite and exciting. I'm due to become a nanny imminently. So I need to make sure that during this time I am fully present and available for all these massive personal events that are happening. So I hope you'll understand. Head Right Out will return on Wednesday the 22nd of December, just in time for your Christmas listening. So if the Christmas movies are all repeats and it all gets a bit much for you, you can just sink into some Head Right Out podcasts and take yourself off to another place. Now lastly, before I go, I have a fabulous range of giveaways to share with you. I'm afraid these are UK based only, however, so please don't enter if you live abroad. I have, first off, Nahala Summers' book, The Accidental Adventurer, and that is what we talked about in episode nine, the last episode. I also have Julia Goodfellow Smith's book, Live Your Bucket List. That's from episode one. Do go back and listen to these episodes if you can't remember them or if you haven't listened to them yet. And I've purchased Ursula Martin's book from this episode, episode 10, One Woman Walks Wales. I've also got a copy myself, which was gifted to me by Ursula's auntie, and I'm looking forward to reading it. There are two technical t-shirts with Head Right Out and If you take a look on the website, in the show notes, you will see pictures of all of these items that you can win. It will also be on my Instagram stories and it will be on my Instagram grid. So here's what you need to do. You need to hit the follow button for Head Right Out in your podcast app. Then come back to Instagram and comment below with done and the name of the platform that you listen on. Then tag a friend. E.g. done. I follow on Stitcher. And the name of your friend, Josephine Blaggs. Sorry, yeah, I I made that one up. (laughs) Make sure you're following my Instagram account too to ensure I can see your comments. That really helps. Winners will be picked randomly after the giveaway closes at 9pm on Wednesday the 17th of November. You can state in the comment if you have a preference of prize, but I'm afraid I can't promise to honour that because it just depends on what's left. So good luck with the giveaway. Remember, you have to enter it to be in with a chance of winning something. So please, please, please enter and please continue to tell your friends about the podcast. Head Right Out is just 15 downloads away from the first milestone of 1,000. 
that is so exciting for me. Have a great few weeks. Enjoy the Head Right Out Out episodes when they land. And don't forget, keep doing the things that scare you, the things that you didn't believe you were capable of. You are capable of so much and your head will thank you for it later. I promise. That's the nature of type two fun. (laughs) Head right out hugs to you all. Mwah.